Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? All right. It's the 10 o'clock, folks. Like, good morning. How are we doing? There we are. Hello, 10 a.m. It is good to see each and every one of you this morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're just so thankful that you are here because God is up to some incredible stuff. We are seeing lives transformed. And can we just, like, make some noise for baptisms this morning? I love it in the first service. Yeah. First service, there were six. There's like four this service. There's a couple in the next service. It is one of my favorite Sundays, and I love what Lane said because it is the story of the gospel that we were dead in our sins and we've been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. And that is the only reason this church exists to multiply, transform followers of Jesus, to see people take that next step of faith whatever that looks like. And so we're so thankful that you've joined us. We do want to know who you are. We want to share some life with you. We'll love to connect with you however we can. So make sure you walk over to guest services and just say hi to somebody or whoever you see with a green lanyard on. If you don't know them, introduce yourself because you matter to the Father and therefore you matter to us. And so I just want to say again, welcome to church. I want you to turn to the book of Revelation as we get started, chapter 21 today. And and maybe it's just me, but this series is just, it's, it's kind of messing with me. I grew up, I've heard these stories, I've seen the picture Bibles, I've heard a lot of these stories over and over again, but there's something unique of what God is stirring in my heart uh, as we walk through the book of Exodus. And so just like each one of you, each week, myself and our, and our family, we sit down and we talk about what God is saying to us through these messages and what he's stirring as we read his word. Um, and I'm just going to be really honest with you guys, this phrase right here, redeemed to be ruled is messing with me. It is messing with me because here's what I know about myself. Here's what I know about Luke Bilberry. I love to be redeemed. I love to be saved. I love to know more importantly that I've got a backstop in life, that someone has my back. I'm the guy who if I was to go, um, you know, like rock climbing, I want to make sure that that rope is there. It is sturdy. It's extra thick. And there's six people holding me up as I'm rock climbing. I want a backstop in life. I need someone to, I need that information in my life. Because what is happening in that is sometimes I won't have faith. I won't trust in those moments or in life in general. I may have a little bit of lack of faith. But where it gets really tricky is that word ruled. Being raised a good Texan boy. No one rules on me. We even have phrases like everything's bigger in Texas and don't tread on me. Come and take my cannon for crying out loud. You know what I'm talking about? No, you don't because you're from Michigan, but it's okay. We still love you from Texas. Um, I don't know where that came from. I apologize. But that phrase messes with me that we've been redeemed to be ruled, that we are not our own, that our Western understanding, our American understanding does not mean that we've been redeemed to do whatever we want. I'm saved. Thank you, Jesus. Catch you later. All right. And we go do our own thing. No, we've been redeemed to be ruled by the King Lord Jesus. That every moment of our life, every thought, every action, every dollar in our bank account, everything we do is meant to be ruled, led, guided by his authority. And so I'm just going to be real honest with you guys. This one's been a little bit of a challenge for me. And so today as we open God's word together, I'm asking that you would allow Holy Spirit to do some work in you. 
that maybe this morning God needs to kind of take a little bit of a chisel to, to your heart and to your life, and it may hurt a little bit. It may be uncomfortable for you to say, I need to be ruled by God today. Maybe some of you in this room, you don't know what it means to be redeemed, and I've got some good news for you today. There is redemption, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we get to live in that overflow of his redemption, and that comes from being ruled by him. So I ask you to turn to the book of Revelation as we continue in our series in Exodus. No, I know I'm from Texas, and Revelation is not Exodus. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? We'll eventually get to the book of Exodus. But here's what I want us to understand. As we look at these next few chapters of Exodus 25, 26, and 27, we are here to see the glory, the grandeur, the awe-inspiring nature of who God is. And we're to live in the light of that. So I want you to hear this morning as we walk through the passage today, this is what it's all about. The glory of God. And we get to benefit from that. Revelation 21, starting in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now I want you to turn to the book of Exodus chapter 25. We see at the end of the story and the revelation of Jesus Christ this beautiful promise that God will dwell with his people and that we will be able to dwell with him. And that one day he will wipe away every tear. He will wipe away all of the pain. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones, Jesus Storybook Bible, this little kid's Bible says, he will make the sad things come untrue. I believe that. I have 100% hope in that. And I know one day that hope will become reality for each and every one of us who know Jesus. And so what do we do with the in-between? What do we do with, here's where God started the story in Genesis, and here's how he wraps it up in the book of Revelation. What do we do in the in-between? Well, we can join the people of God, the Israelites, like ourselves, in the wilderness. Always questioning, seeing the culture wars, feeling the tensions of our day and age. The Israelites felt that themselves, and that's why we are walking through this book of Exodus. Because I want to give you a quick overview of where we've been and where we are going in this story. In Exodus 1, chapter 1 through verse 12, we find that the people of Israel are in bondage in Egypt. They are slaves to another master who is not good, who is not for them, who is not wiping away the tears from their eyes, but putting tears in their eyes because of the oppression and the slavery that is happening to them. And so the people of God cry out, God, would you save us? God, would you show up? And God, would you redeem us? And he does. 
He shows up in Exodus 12 through verse 18 where he does a miracle. And maybe you remember this. He parts the waters of the Red Sea and the Israelites walk through on dry ground. God shows up and redeems his people. And as they are walking through this wilderness, God takes them to a place called Mount Sinai. And from Exodus 19 to 40, we find that the people are going to be camped around Mount Sinai to get instructions from God on what it means to be his people. What we see in the story of Exodus is the people of God have been redeemed. They are going to be ruled by God. And that's where we find ourselves in chapters 25 through 27 today is we're getting instructions. Moses is receiving instructions from the Lord on what it means to be ruled by God, on what it means to be, to put him as the authority, to put him as the chief of the people of God. And so I ask you this morning, maybe you find yourself in one of those places. Maybe you have not been redeemed and you feel captive, you feel stuck, you feel trapped to some sin, some bondage, some things in your life. That you're beginning to cry out, God, will you show up? And you're hoping he has a way. And I'm here to tell you, he does have a way. And the way, the truth, and the life is Jesus Christ. And God has a plan and a purpose, and he is at work in those things. And maybe you're kind of here in this place, and you've been redeemed, and you're trying to learn and figure out what does that mean for you. And maybe you've walked with Jesus for a while, and God has given you the instructions of how to follow after him. And he wants us to live fully under his authority and at him as the ruler. And so we find ourselves in that place in Exodus 25, getting some of those instructions that Moses does from the Lord I want to remind you, if you have not already, there are these bracelets. They're at the cafe right outside the main worship center, at the guest services and the other venues. Make sure you grab one of these. Just a gift for you to remind it. Remind you, I've been wearing this every day since we started this, and every day is almost this, do I really believe, as I put it on, that I truly want God to rule over me? That I will submit my life and my decisions and everything to him, and in a way, binding myself to Christ every morning. And so I invite you to grab one of these bracelets as well as a reminder for you because we find ourselves in this in-between from Genesis when God creates the world and it is very good. And God lives and dwells with his people, but sin shows up, breaks that relationship with people and God. And we find ourselves in this place in between knowing that God has made a way through Jesus Christ, but man, we're hoping someday that he will wipe away those tears. And so that is our hope kind of lay some foundation for where we are in the book of Exodus. And now let's look at Exodus chapter 25. What has happened in chapter 24 previously is that God has called Moses at Mount Sinai to leave the people at the base of the mountain, to bring up some of the leaders um, some way up the mountain, and then for Moses to take another journey a little bit higher up. And there Moses is going to meet with God, and God is going to give all of these instructions to the to Moses, Moses is going to bring those down to the leaders, and those leaders are going to bring it down to the people of God, that they would live and walk in such a manner. So we find ourselves having, hearing this conversation between God and Moses, starting in chapter 25. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they may take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, for the fragrant incense, 
onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breast piece and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. I want you to key in on that phrase and that's why it's on the screen. And let them make me a sanctuary, a tabernacle, a tent of meeting or some other phrases that you could put here that this thing that we're going to talk about in just a moment are called. Because it is a sanctuary that what? That I may, say it with me, dwell. That I may dwell. God's ultimate desire from Genesis to Revelation is that he would dwell with his people. Like, let that begin to kind of soften your heart and your mind this moment. That God Almighty, the creators of the heavens and the earth, the one who spoke and there were things in the world, the one who caused, is the, the original, the uncreated creator, says, I want to dwell with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to dwell with my people, that I may dwell with them. And he goes on in verse 9, exact, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. What we get instructions for in Exodus 25, 26, and 27 and beyond are instructions for something that is called the tabernacle. Everyone say tabernacle. Now, some of you may have grown around like camps and some things like that. And you know what a, the tabernacle is the place where you have the outdoor like worship service, right? Like you maybe have heard that word. But if you didn't grow up around churches and you didn't go to a Christian summer camp, you're like, what in the world is a tabernacle? And did you just say something you should not say with your mouth? You know, did you kiss your mom with that mouth? No, a tabernacle is something that God set up where he would meet with his people. And he gives us clear instructions on how to do that. And what that should look like. He is very precise about how it looks. And so I do want you to read 25, 26, and 27 in detail. Because God goes into detail. But for today, we're going to kind of do a quick overview. And then we're going to kind of land. What does this mean for us as God's people right here at Chapel Point here in West Michigan? What does that mean for us? And so I want to walk quickly walk through this. I want you to, to look on your, uh, the screen with me, and we can play some little fill-in-the-blanks. I'm going to kind of orient us to what the tabernacle is. And in 25, 26, 27, they're going to dial in on a few of these elements, and then in other chapters, you're going to read more information about those as well. But quickly, we have this whole thing is called the tabernacle. This layout of a, this white line is going to be fabric and fence posts. And inside, there's going to be an inner courtyard. There's going to be, and then a tabernacle specifically built where the presence of God dwells. And we see it broken into two parts, the holy place and the holy of holies. And what we're going to find in there are very specific instructions on how to build these pieces of furniture so that God can be worshipped appropriately. And I wonder for us, have you ever considered, as you read through these passages later, as you look at it in your small groups, or you talk about it with your friends and family over lunch, have you ever considered that maybe God is the one who defines how he should be worshipped? Not our feelings, not our preferences, not our own desires, but that we should actually listen to the word of God and say, God, how do you want me to respond to you? God, how do you want me to respond to your presence and to your will and to your way versus saying, well, I just didn't feel it today. You know what? They sure didn't play that song that stirs my heart every time. Or, you know, that preacher, he's not that good. Well, don't worry. I won't be preaching next week. You come back, all right? Promise. We go by our preferences. But how often do we actually say, God, how do you want me to respond? 
And God gives us the people how to respond with that with very precise details. We have the altar where a sacrifice would, where someone would bring a sacrifice and the priests of God would offer that sacrifice. There would be a hot fire there and they would burn that meat or that offering, whatever that would be at this burnt offering at this altar. The priests would then be able to wash their hands and cleanse themselves before they would walk into the tabernacle here because inside we are now seeing removing from things that are far from God to things that are going to be near God. So what we see happening in the tabernacle is God gives us a place where he is, but then also how we can then start beginning moving, move towards the presence of God. And so the priests began to mediate those relationships for us. And so you step in, and they have a lampstand. That lampstand represents this tree of life, this menorah candle uh, that would uh, shine bright in this space. And those lamps would be lit continually. Chapter 27 specifically talks about that. You have a table that there would be 12 loaves of bread. This is also called the showbread, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and ultimately representing that Jesus Christ says, I am the bread of life. That's why we remember him in communion with the breaking of the bread, that his body is ultimately going to be broken for us so that we can have access to God. And there's an altar of incense where burning incense would be uh, placed every day. And this represents the prayers of the people of God. So the priests would receive the sacrifice, would be able to walk in every day and do the work of the ministry there and offering this incense, these prayers of the people up before God. But there's something unique that divides the holy place, and it is this veil, this thing that stands in between them. And on that veil, the scripture tells us that there are uh, cherubim, these, these pictures of angels that are on the fabric. This is the same angel, the name of the angel, or not like a specific person, but the, the type of angel, I guess, if you will, that is the one that had to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden and stands, says, you cannot come back in because you are now sinful. You've now been removed from the presence of God. And behind that veil is the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, where chapter 25 spells out how to build that ark. And it is where God's presence ultimately shows up. And I want to show you quickly just maybe some replicas of, uh, not maybe some, I'm going to show you some replicas that are made. These are uh, in southern Israel, and people can go and tour these. And so this is what the Ark of the Covenant may look like, given uh, its descriptions. It is a wood it's a wood chest, but it's lined on the outside and the inside of gold. And on that would be the two cherubim. Those are the angels that are, they're spelled out how to make them, and they're facing one another, guarding the presence of God, that people can't just step into the presence of God, but there is something that goes between them. And ultimately, chapter 25 is going to call this the mercy seat, where on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, the high priest would have to walk through certain rituals. He could step through that veil after the the rituals have been performed, and then offer that, the sacrifice, that blood on the mercy seat so that the people of Israel, God's people, the blood would cover over their sins. It would cover over their mistakes and allow them to continue to live in relationship with God. And in the temple, you also see, here's a picture of the showbread table where it has those 12 loaves, and once a week, that bread would be changed out, and then the priest would be able to eat of that bread. And so that's kind of a table where we're similar when we think about like our communion table, when we put those out uh, previously. That's kind of that concept I want you to begin thinking about. This is what the lampstand would look like. It would be representing the tree of life that stood in the Garden of Eden, that from those things that the light of God that would shine in the space. And then this is a replica of the actual tabernacle to go from kind of that 2D drawing to what it may look like, where you have the altar and the, and the wash basin and inside all of those elements. And around this tabernacle, the people of God would camp. 
the Levites would camp nearest to the tabernacle, and then the people of God would rest all around it. And that, my friends, is what we see painted in the scriptures of Exodus 25, 26, and 27, is this tabernacle, that picture of God's place where he would dwell with his people as he tells us in 25, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. So the question I want to ask you then is, is why the tabernacle? Why such precise detail? Because if you read the passages, they are so specific. Measure it this way, this many cubits, and you're going to have this many rings to hold the fabric together, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. Because God, ultimately, the tabernacle shows us God's movement towards us as humanity, and it also provides a way for us as humanity to move towards God through the practices, through the sacrifices, through these rhythms of following after God that he would prescribe for the people of Israel. So not anyone, not anyone could just walk up and say, hey, uh, I'm next in line for the presence of God. All right, you good? No, there was a process. There was a rhythm to how that would operate. And God is lining out with Moses on top of Mount Sinai. This is how I will rule and live among my people. And he lays it out time, it lays it out with all of these specific details. And so here's what I want us to understand today. If that's what the tabernacle is and that's why it exists, what does that mean for us here and now? What does that mean for you and I this morning? I want us to understand that we cannot have access to God apart from the sacrifice, apart from somebody moving on our behalf because of our brokenness. And there is a process. God ultimately makes a way for you, for you and I, to have access to God, to draw near to him. And we know in Genesis 1 and 2, God created man, and he said it was good, but sin broke it. So from the beginning of time until now, God has been working to draw us to him through Jesus Christ. So how does he do that? In the Old Testament, we see this in 25 through 21, that he says, make for me a mercy seat. Make for me a place where I can essentially offer a sacrifice before the people of God. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. So the law of God, the word of God is put inside the ark, and on top of that is the mercy seat, the, the, the top of the counter where the cherubim are overseeing that. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you, and there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. So God always has someone there to help mediate our relationship with God. God lines up Moses as the leader of Israel, helping them. He's saying, I'm going to meet with you there, but it's going to be according to my ways and to my rules, and I will meet you at the mercy seat. I just, I love, I love that that's how God starts this conversation out. I'm going to make a place to dwell for you. And Moses, I'm going to meet you there at the mercy seat so that you can then have influence, that you can impact, that you can encourage my people as I speak to you. And what we know ultimately is that Jesus Christ, as I've heard one writer say, is the true and better Moses. 
Jesus is the true and better Moses because guess what? Moses is no longer alive and Moses is no longer there at the tent of meeting, at the tabernacle, helping us understand who God is. But Jesus Christ himself shows up in flesh and in bone. God himself takes on human form and shows up so that you and I can have someone to mediate our relationship with God. That is what John 1 tells us, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. It is only through Jesus Christ who now sits at the mercy seat of God, dispensing mercy and grace that we could never earn. And that same Jesus Christ is also called the light of the world. That light of the world who we were able to walk in relationship with before sin. But because something happened, sin stepped in and it broke our relationship with God. Where God is holy and set apart. You and I can no longer have access to God because of that. But Jesus steps into our story. To be the perfect sinless sacrifice is what the Bible tells us. So that you and I could possibly have that opportunity to step into a relationship with with God. And Jesus took on himself our sins. He took on himself our burdens. And in Matthew 27, 50 through 51, Jesus is hanging on the cross And there in that moment, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That veil, if you remember that picture of that was on the screen a moment ago of the Holy of Holies, that is what he's referring to. That is what he is calling out. That veil that separated Holy of Holies, God Almighty from the rest of humanity, that veil has now been torn in two. And you and I, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, your sins, past, present, and future, have been removed from you by grace through faith. You and I get to come near God Almighty, the light of the world. You and I get to draw near to him because of what he has done for us. We have been redeemed. We have been redeemed and made new. The old is gone and the new has come. If you believe and you have faith, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you get to draw near to God Almighty. And Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this, where it's talking about Jesus, our high priest the one who mediates our relationship between us and God. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, we can have confidence to draw near to God. We don't have to worry about God saying, get out of my presence. Because why? Because of our Savior, Jesus. Because of your confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 10, 19 tells us. By the new and living way that he opened for us. By the new way he opened for us. We could not do this before. Jesus opens a new way for us to draw near to the presence of God himself. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus Christ, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure word, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. These are the words 
of God written to people who understood what the tabernacle and, and the certain way of worship was, saying there is a new way open for you. No longer do you have to make a sacrifice at the burnt altar. No longer do you need to bring incense and prayers before the Lord. But you only have to believe and trust in Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose three days later so that you didn't have to die forever. And so I want you to hear this morning. I want you to hear some encouragement from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, write this down, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. You who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That's right. Each and every one of you here and whoever's online or listening, you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, that you can draw near to the full presence of God because of Jesus. Therefore, you can have life everlasting, life abundant here in the now. Because here we know the people of Israel, they're still on the ground at Mount Sinai. They're still in the middle of nowhere. They still have not stepped into the promised land that God is saying, I'm taking you from slavery to the promised land. We are still in the in-between. We have walked, many of us, out of slavery, of sin, into new life with Jesus Christ. But he hasn't come back yet. And you know what? I still have tears in my eyes and your heart still hurts. But Jesus Christ himself says, I'm coming back and I'm wiping away those tears and I'm taking away all those pains. So what do we do now as God's people? What do we do now in the wilderness of, of our day? I want you to understand something. And then, <laughs> it caught me off guard in the first service and I was like, don't mess up this moment, Luke. But it, it, it makes no sense what I'm about to read to you guys. It, I, I truly, my heart finds it hard to believe. Who are we that God would be mindful of us? That's what one of the Old Testament writers says. But in 1 Corinthians 16, 3, chapter 3, verse 16. I find this hard to believe. And I wonder what would be different if I began to believe it for myself and we as a church began to truly believe it by faith. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, who's in the wilderness all their own, do you not know? Do you, church, not know? Do you, Luke Bilberry, not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The God that spoke in the beginning and said, let there be light. Dwells in here? The God that spoke all things into being lives in here? 
God calls us his temple, a tabernacle, a place for him to dwell. And from here, we get to be in relationship with God, who the scriptures tell us time and time again is slow to anger, steadfast in love, who time and time again, the scriptures tell us he is kind, loving, that he is with us, that he is for us, that through every up and down and through every wilderness experience you and I will ever have, every moment of tension in our lives, God says, I am with you, and it makes no sense that God would dwell in me, and, and if maybe you're similar in that response, is that you know you, and you know your brokenness, and you know your hurts and your hangups and all these things about you, yet God in grace and in love chooses to dwell in your life, that your life would represent his temple, and what's the purpose of the temple? That God would draw near to humanity and that humanity would be able to com- connect and move towards God. That means, church, God wants to use us. That means, church, God wants to use you to allow people to experience the full presence of God. Can you believe that for a moment? That God would actually want to dwell inside of us to allow us to mediate his relationship with the world through Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith, all about Jesus Christ, and we get to be a part of that. We get to be a temple of God, where God's spirit dwells. And I wonder for us this morning, How do we respond to that? I wonder for us as a church, how do we respond to that? What we're going to find in the passages to come in the story of Exodus. Moses comes down this mountain with all of these instructions. Moses comes down the mountain with all the instructions. And the people of Israel began to realize something. I have been redeemed. They have been redeemed, pulled out of slavery, for the moment walking around the wilderness, but yet God says, those are my people and I want to be with them and I want them to be with me. And God wants us to respond in such a way, church, students, kids in the room that allows a lost, hurt, broken, dying, confused, sad people that are outside of the camp, outside of the tents, outside of our family, our church family, to use us to let them see the light. Ultimately, that they too, by Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection, they too can draw near to the full presence of God. Holy Spirit would fill them and change them so that then they can go back into their homes as other tabernacles, other sanctuaries of the presence of God. So a couple questions of response for us, or kind of some ideas to think around. The people of God... God didn't come down with Moses and say, give me all the gold and the stuff to make the tabernacle. 
He says, if your heart is moved, would you surrender? And so I want to ask you, can I make this statement as a question for us? The more powerful the redemption, the more surrendered the response. Ultimately, the people of God are going to hear the instructions from the Lord, and they're going to have to make a decision. Will I surrender these things to the Lord? They're homeless in the middle of nowhere. You want my stuff to make a tent? Yes. Yes, we do. And if your heart is moved, give voluntarily, give willingly. That's why it's important for us, church, to walk surrendered, living generously with every part of our lives, our finances, our energies, our thoughts, our words, that we would be willingly surrendered because we know what we've been redeemed from. We know what we've been redeemed from, that we were once dead in our sins, but now we've made, been made alive. We've been made alive together in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2 tells us. We need to understand, like the people of Israel, that the more powerful the redemption, the more abiding the response. Moses is going to walk off this mountain. He's going to give these instructions. And you guess what? The people of Israel are going to begin to draw near. They're going to abide with the presence of God. Spoiler alert, there's a few hiccups along the way, just like each and every one of us. But when we begin to abide in John chapter 15, abide in me as I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing, John 15 tells us. When you abide, it is a deep dwelling. It is a sit down, take your shoes off, and hang out a bit. It's a make yourself at home kind of thing. Because we realize we've been redeemed from, we can sit in the presence of God Almighty. Today, you can sit in the presence of God Almighty and hear the Father say, I love you. You could dwell deeply in the fact that you are saved now and forevermore. You can dwell deeply in the fact it doesn't matter come whatever the storm, Jesus is with you. You can find out in the scriptures in the story, the more powerful the redemption, the more aware the response. The more we know what we've been redeemed from, the more we are aware of God at work in our life. And it is beautiful, it is complex, it can be simple. God is moving in everything. God is moving in every word, in every moment of our day. It's too often that we as the people of God, we live and we're like, oh wait, yeah, he is inside of me. We become unaware because of all the things in the world, but I'm asking us, church, that we remember our redemption. Therefore, we become more aware and we respond to his goodness and his faithfulness and his nearness, church, that God lives inside of us. Those of us who are believers and followers of Jesus, God lives in there, lives in here. He lives in each and every one of you. May we be aware. And from that church, the more powerful the redemption, the more activated the response can be. The Israelites are still in the wilderness. The Israelites are still have a long journey ahead of them, just like many of you do. Just like many of you do, but they are activated with the instructions of the Lord. Church, we have been activated with the instructions of the Lord. We know all we need to know, if I can be as bold to say that. The question is, will we do what he says we're to do? Will we act in such a manner as he has called us to act? Because he's dwelling inside of us, and if we're aware of that, 
then church, we have no other thing to do than to, as Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, you are a city on the hill, a light that cannot be hidden. So church, can we, as a people of God, allow the light and the glory and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ to actually be the only thing that matters? To be the only thing that takes center stage in our lives so that those who are lost and walking in darkness can see a great light as the scriptures tell us. And that great light is Jesus Christ who happens to shine through you. Who happens to shine through you. And so ask one last thing. The more blank the response. That one's yours. That one's yours. You, You fill in the word. I don't know what the Lord's stirring on your heart today. The more powerful the redemption, the more you realize how much he's moved in your life. In some ways, you could say this may be too poetic in some ways, that God has moved heaven and earth in order for us to experience him, to experience eternal life with him. How should you respond, church? How should you respond, brothers and sisters? I invite you in this moment to write whatever word stirs your heart, whatever thing comes to your mind in that. Because here's what I know. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. I'd love for you to write that down and maybe read it and follow up with it later. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, since we have confidence, Today, I can walk to the Father. Holy God, so set apart, so worthy of all that I am, and who am I? I tell you who I am. I'm loved. I'm known. And so are you. And you walk with confidence into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through the veil that is through the flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house, let us draw near. My friends, let us draw near with a true heart, an open heart, a surrendered heart, and full assurance, and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession. The confession is that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is our Savior. And this is what we get to do together today, church. Let's hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. And let us, let us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I want us to hear and understand that the God who dwelled with his people in the wilderness, who dwelled deeply with his people in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, is the same God who dwells in your wilderness today. And I ask you, church, to boldly come before the throne of grace to be ruled by him, to be led by Holy Spirit for the glory and the honor and the praise of God Almighty. However the Lord leads you to respond this morning, 
if you don't know who Jesus is and you don't know him as Redeemer, <laughs> come on. I, like, seriously, I'll baptize you right now. I don't even care. I will get in then with these genes, and we will go for it. If you don't know who Jesus is, I ask you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to walk from death to life, to know that you can have a more powerful response because of the redemption God has worked in your life. If you know Jesus, church, I'm asking that you remember that you are a temple of the holy God. And because of that, you would allow people to have access to God Almighty. That the veil has been torn into. There is no separation between you and God, and therefore there is no separation between God and anyone else. The good news is for everyone of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And we get to be a part of his ministry here and now. Jesus' work to see the lost saved, the broken find healing, and hope in the name of Jesus. May we respond as his church. God, have your way, Holy Spirit. We are your people. Thank you for your redemption that we do not deserve. But yet, God, you've heard our cry, you've heard our brokenness, you've heard our hearts, and you acted on our behalf. We thank you. (laughs) Seems such a trite word, thank you, but thank you, Jesus. I have no other words. So for my friends, my brothers, and my sisters in this room, may we respond in redemptive, your redemptive work, and also, God, to be a part of your movement here in West Michigan. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.